Good morning, Grace. And I want to start by wishing you a Merry Christmas. 2020 has been a difficult year. And I imagine that for many of us, Christmas this year would be nothing like it usually is. Uh, some people don't have uh, family members to celebrate Christmas with. People have lost loved ones, uh, lost their means of livelihood. Just the world is different. Everything has changed. And I imagine the way we celebrate and the rhythms and patterns we're used to is, is changing too. And you might be wondering what it's going to look like. So, so this morning, I wanted us to take a look at the first Christmas and see principles or lessons we can learn from the very first Christmas that would help us as we navigate a 2020 Christmas season. So I've titled this message, 2020 Lessons from a First Century Christmas. But we're going to move even further back, a couple centuries before Jesus was born, uh, to look at a prophecy that was given by a man named Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 through 5, and I'm going to read. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely. For then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. So Micah's prophecy, um, scholars, including those during the time of Jesus, recognize that this prophecy was a reference to the Messiah. And in short, he says about Bethlehem, the town, the little village of Jesus' birth, Though you are little, out of you will come a ruler whose origins are from ancient times, a ruler who will advocate for God's people with God's strength, a ruler through whom they will experience God's security and who will bring God's peace. And this morning, I'd like us to just focus on just the first line of that. Though you are little, out of you will come a ruler a ruler whose origins are from ancient times. And there are three lessons that I think we can um, draw out as we look at the very first Christmas, at the events that happened when Jesus was born. Though you are little, out of you will come a ruler whose origins are from ancient times. So though you are little, Christmas reminds us that God chooses the lowly things when he wants to manifest his power and his greatness. See, friends, the baby that lay in the manger wrapped up was born king of the Jews. That's what the Magi said when they came. They had traveled, and they said they were there to worship the baby who has been born king of the Jews. But you couldn't tell by looking at his surroundings. I mean, why would anybody 
want to have a baby in those circumstances. There's nothing about him that indicated greatness or the grandeur we would typically associate with the birth of a king. And I mean, when we even look at some of the, the, the cast of characters uh, around this historic event, uh, let's just think about Mary, for instance. Mary was the mother of the baby. Outwardly, to look at her, Mary didn't look like a role model. She, she, she was a young woman, uh, most probably teenage age, and she, she wouldn't fit the description that we would give to someone who is blessed today. A poor, pregnant, out-of-wedlock teenage girl. I mean, ju just in case you think this is something I'm reading in the material, let's, let's kind of hear from Mary herself how she, she describes the experience. Because Mary is mentioned in the gospel accounts, but we don't often hear her in her own words. And one of the places, the few places where we do, is in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 1, uh, from verse 46 to 55. So Mary is pregnant. She knows she's about to have a baby, and she knows it's a special child. She's aware of her circumstances. And, and here's how she responds to it in a passage that's called the Magnificat. It's, it's named after the, the first line in Latin. And, and I'll read. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble estate, the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful, and to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. You see how Mary describes herself as a humble servant girl. As a matter of fact, she, she also applies the same thought to Israel. And, and let's be clear. Mary's hometown was about an hour's walk from Sepphoris. Sepphoris had previously been the district headquarters of Galilee. And it was located near one of the major trade routes of the empire. If you were traveling from Egypt to Damascus, you would pass by Mary's hometown. She grew up and lived in the shadow of the empire with a constant reminder of the Roman domination over Israel. So, so in her song that we just read, not only does she identify herself as a lowly servant girl, Mary is acutely aware that that is also an accurate description of Israel under Roman domination. And in that circumstance, in that situation, Mary calls herself blessed. Now, here's the thing, friends. Some of this is contrary to what we would call blessed today. We, we look to success, accomplishments, and acclaim as signature evidence of God's blessings. We, we have assurance of God's presence and his blessings when everything is going well. And don't get me wrong, that includes me. 
right? On Christmas Day, I'm probably going to look around me at, at, the, at the smiling, warm, well-fed, clothed, and, and healthy faces of my close family members. And, and if I have any good sense, I, I would probably think to myself, God, I am blessed. And, and that would be true because I am. Because that's how we recognize God's blessings. But we're slower to recognize the blessings that are wrapped up in the messiness of our lives. For Christmas, we, we tend to, we burst out the lights and the tinsel, and, and, and there's even mistletoe. We have Christmas movies, anyone with the romance and royalty. At Christmas, at least the way we, we typically think about it, life inches a little bit closer to perfection. We, we finally get something we've wished for for a long time or something we've longed for, worked hard for, and saved up for in, in our gifts. But for Mary and Joseph, it didn't look at all like that. God was breaking through the ordinariness and revealing himself in the messiness of their lives. Here's my point. God chooses to identify with small weak and despised things and uses them to accomplish his great purposes. So first lesson, Christmas reminds us that God is with the lowly. Friends, Paul the apostle says this even more clearly in his letter to the Corinthians. And he says, brothers and sisters, Think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And just in case that still doesn't convince you about how God identifies with people that we would identify as the downtrodden, people who are, are suffering or even on the margins of society. Uh, here's what Jesus said. This one is in the words of Jesus. And he says, but when the Son of Man comes in his glory, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth. When you did it to one of the least of these my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. So, are you experiencing hunger or food insecurity this Christmas? Are you feeling lonely? Have you lost family members or loved ones this year? Or are you just unable to be together with them? 
Are you lonely because you're an immigrant uh, or you're a foreigner and, and you're not able to have your loved ones together with you? Uh, do you feel a similar loneliness because you've lost loved ones or because you're just unable to connect in this season of the pandemic? Can I gently remind you that where you are is where Jesus is to be found. That's what he says to, to his disciples. He says that's where he is to be found. Have you made bad choices and screwed up your life? Are you looking at the prospect of prison time? Or are you in prison as you hear this? Friend, if Jesus is to be believed, he says he is found right there where you are. Are you battling chronic illness and pain and feel as, as though this would ruin Christmas this year for you? Let me say to you, Jesus identifies with you and he says where you are right there is where he is to be found. You can take comfort in this truth. When we acknowledge this, it actually makes it easier to recognize how and where God is at work in the midst of the messiness of our lives. And maybe there's someone here who just can't relate with this. Perhaps life is just good. You can rejoice in that. But when you do experience brokenness, remember that Jesus chooses to identify with people who, is, who are struggling and that God works through those struggles. There are two practical implications to this truth. Number one is that we recognize where God is in the messiness of our lives. And secondly, is that we can respond to God by reaching out to the messiness in the lives of others. Jesus said, when you visited those in prison, when you cared for the sick, you did it for me. So here's what I want to say to you this Christmas. Look at the messiness of life around you. Look at the loss. Perhaps you or a struggling member, if a, struggling, a family member is struggling to make it through the day. Perhaps it looks and feels like your life is simply just falling apart. I've come to tell you that right in the midst of that is where God is to be found. That's the first lesson from, from first century Christmas. Now, now, the second one, out of you will come a ruler. The birth of Jesus also posed a threat to a king. In fact, it is in that context that the prophecy of Micah, which we started with, is mentioned in Matthew's gospel. God's identification with the lowly not only strengthens and encourages them, but it's also a challenge to the powerful and the self-sufficient. So while Luke gives us an account of the humble birth of Jesus, Matthew tells us how that little baby born into humble circumstances posed a threat to one of the most powerful persons in Palestine, a man that's known in history as Herod the Great. Now, now Herod was a vassal of the Roman Empire. Rome had named him King of Judea, despite the fact that he had no real claim to the throne himself. And even then, 
that rested on, on shaky ground. Here's why. The, the Roman emperor at the time was, was Octavius, uh, then known as Caesar Augustus, right? But before his ascendancy, Herod has supported Octavius's chief rival, Mark Antony. And, and Herod, therefore, spent a lot of time and effort trying to convince Augustus that he was a reliable client of Rome. This alienated many of the Jews who felt that he was betraying their values uh, by promoting foreign practices. So imagine the response of this powerful man, already insecure, when some foreign dignitaries arrive at his court and announce that they're here to see the king of the Jews, one who has been born king of the Jews, so that they can pay homage to him. From the beginning of his life, Jesus was a threat to those in power. That's what I'm trying to point out. Jesus was a threat to those in power. Later, as a child grew up, he would pose a threat to both religious and political authorities. Similarly, Jesus poses a threat to even to, to our personal pride. Jesus confronts my selfishness and then challenges and invites me to a life that's not centered on me, but devoted to him and focused on serving others. You see, friends, at Christmas, uh, there's an increased social pressure to take pride in, in tangible things like the, the size of a Christmas bonus, the kind of toys you can afford for your friends or your loved ones, or even the type of fancy vacation that you can afford. And now, evidently, this year has made, that has made that different for many people. But perhaps it's also an opportunity for us to pause and realize that everything that that Christmas baby stood for was a challenge to any form of ostentatious, abusive use of power. So here's, a, here's a, the second lesson from that first century Christmas. Christmas reminds us that God resists the proud. You know, I, I know a family that has been reading through Luke's Gospels, and, and one of the children in that family, after a while, said, you know, I... I'm not sure I like Jesus anymore. And the parents said, well, why is that? And this child said, well, many times, many times he's not nice. He's not nice. He's, he, he can be mean sometimes. See, friends, our nativity sets and, and our songs might portray a gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but there was really very little that was mild about who that child grew up to become. More like wild. You know, I remember a scene from C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where there's a conversation between, between the children and, and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. Uh, it says, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. 
He's the king, I tell you. Jesus is not safe. Jesus is not safe. What that 10-year-old child was, was grappling with was that when we look, we take a closer look at the Gospels, we don't find a convenient, very nice Jesus who places and makes no demands on our lives. We find someone who challenges us out of our lethargy, who, who confronts our selfishness, who confronts powerful people and says, no, this is not how God wants it. Uh, and you know, James's letter says that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Jesus was born to bring us salvation, but everything he stands for opposes our reliance on our own power, position, and strength. Jesus is a threat to all these things, and walking with him makes a demand that we lay down these things at his feet. Here's a question, friends. Where and how is this baby, that Christmas baby, a threat to you? How does he challenge the way that I use my responsibilities and my position? I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher. That's what I do for a living. How does Jesus challenge how I approach my interactions with my students? That baby was a challenge to a king who wanted to preserve his political power and authority by all means. He would grow up to challenge those who wanted to preserve their social and religious power. How would you respond to that? Because Christmas reminds us that God resists the proud. And then the third lesson, uh, remember, Though you were little, out of you will come a ruler whose origins are from ancient times. See, let's, let's just focus and, and think a little bit about that baby, that baby that was lying in the manger. He was just, he was more than just an ordinary baby. He was the God-man. And yeah, I, I, let, me, let me acknowledge that the idea of a being who is both divine and human, it may sound strange to you, may sound strange to someone who's hearing this or listening to this. Well, Christians call this the incarnation. When God took on flesh, he took on humanity, he became human. And it says his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Christmas reminds us that God is with us. It's also a challenge for us to practice that same incarnational presence with others. You know, at Christmas, we're often, we're often tempted to do the opposite. We, we let our, our relationships be mediated by gifts, activities, and, and pageants. But Christmas brings us a reminder that it is important to connect with people like God connected with us through that baby. Human sin, sometimes we, we call them accidents. We might call them mistakes. You know, mistaker sounds a lot nicer than sinner. 
But who am I fooling? At the end of the day, I know that I do wrong and that many times it is my choice to do so. But how does God respond to my sin? How does God respond to our sins? Not by condemning us and saying, well, you fix your own mess. But he did it by becoming one of us. God could have solved our sin problem by just requiring us to make animal sacrifices. But instead, he chose to become like us. He chose to identify with us and experience our weakness, experience our limitations. And we're called to do the same with others. Christmas is a reminder of the incarnation and a challenge for us to, to live incarnational lives. Here's a challenge for you. This year, 2020, why don't you give your presence more than you give presents this year? Why don't you seek to empathize with someone this Christmas season? How about you take the time to listen to your family members and loved ones and try to understand them? Maybe they just want to be understood more than they need gifts. If you're a parent, instead of just buying an expensive present for your child, why don't you also seek to understand them and connect with them this season? The same applies to, to people, uh, people and their parents too. Same goes for the younger, uh, sophisticated, knowledgeable person who finds the old-fashioned parents boring. Why don't you seek to get on the same page with them this Christmas? It's called the Incarnation. Or the strong, experienced parent with an inexperienced adult child. I'm convinced, friends, that a lot of family drama we experience in the holiday season can be redeemed if we lived incarnational lives. What if there was an explosion of incarnation rippling out from every one of us hearing this message? Imagine the impact. That would be a powerful reflection of the first Christmas.